person who ever followed Jesus and surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit never regretted it. Never. This is the church. This is what the world needs. God wants to unleash us as his church. He wants to unleash you. He wants to feel the power of his spirit that not only commissions you to his mission, but empowers you to see your life change. Hey, good morning again. Uh, Lucy is always excited about everything that happens, right? Yes, this is good. Hey, would you grab your Bibles if you have those? And uh, we're going to jump into Acts chapter 4, the last part of chapter 4. If you access to your phone or your iPad, find your way to uh, uh, Acts 4. Uh, we'll look at verse 32 and actually we'll write, roll right into the first couple verses of chapter 5. So this morning we continue in the series through Resurgence and through the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to talk about the power of generosity. And uh, when, when you're walk, we're walking through, if you've been here the last number of weeks or a couple of months, you've seen that we go through different passages, and there's some incredible things that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And so we're revisiting what's happened in the past to understand whatever the future is supposed to look like for the church. And th this morning we look at a passage that is mo the moment that you hear the word generosity, most of our default is it's about money. It's about resources. Actually, generosity, the outflow of generosity uh, looks like money and looks like resource, but there's something much more powerful. In fact, what I'm going to read in just a moment out of this passage is just as powerful as the miracles, as the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. We read through the, the, the book of Acts and we highlight the big power moments where God heals a blind man or helps a person who couldn't walk to walk or casts out a demon, which are these great encounters. And then there's these little interludes of how the church looked and what it, what it did and kind of the rhythms of life that it lived in. And we kind of just skim over those to get to kind of the mountain peaks. When we do that, we miss out on the power of what's present in those moments because those are just as important and just as significant and just as powerful as the miracles that we see all the time throughout the book of Acts. And this is true of this passage today. And so as we think about this, thinking about generosity, I, I think we, we need to change our understanding of what generosity is according to what we're going to see from the passage today. And there's a couple things just to, to keep in mind of what generosity is and is not. It's, it's not driven by what I have. It's never like, okay, I, I got to figure out what I have so I can be generous. It's actually driven by looking at other people and responding with, what do they need? It's not, it's not driven by, what do, what do I need or what I want? It's always driven by, what does this person need in their life? And it doesn't necessarily have to be resources, but what do they need that I might have to offer them? And that's what generosity is. It never starts with self. It always starts with the other. And that's a shift for us because our world, we live in a world that everything starts with us. Everything revolves around us. Everything is about us. But generosity flips that and says, no, it's always about what is God doing in somebody else? What can I offer? What can I do to help first? And you're thinking, wait, what about me? That's the challenge. That's always the voice inside that says, I've got to make sure I take care of me first. What you and I will see from this passage today is that the, the church early on didn't think that way. They didn't live that way. In fact, generosity wasn't a human endeavor. It was a divine one. It was inspired by God to live beyond ourselves because God's the one that shows us generosity. He's the, the, the master of generosity. In fact, listen, this will be up on the screen. Listen to this, this verse out of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, So what great love the Father has done, what? He's lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and this is what we are. That God is what lavished on us generously love. So we live in this context where the, the God of the universe continues to pour out generosity on us 
so that we learn to be like him, to be generous, which is what the church 2,000 years ago lived in. It was a normal part of their life. It wasn't a moment. It wasn't an event. It wasn't an encounter. It was a rhythm of life. And that's part of what we're walking through is that resurgence is not just a year through the book of Acts. It's supposed to reestablish the way we see church and the way we see our lives and how that changes the way we live every single day. So with this, with this mindset, if you have your Bibles, let me go ahead and we'll look at uh, Acts chapter 4, 32 through the first couple of verses of chapter 5. So it says this, it says, Now full, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was, uh, there was no need, not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also call, called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then look at the first two verses of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. We're going to stop there because actually, so, so you know, uh, the, the chapters and verses that we have in our Bible were not there put, put there originally. We put those in over time to give us kind of markers. And when you read through this passage, the first two verses of chapter 5 really actually are more connected to what we did read, read in chapter 4. But they set up what will happen next week in, in the rest of chapter 5, which we'll talk about. But just looking at the, the way they lived their life in, in the sense that everybody had possessions, but nobody claimed their possessions at their own. They all were in one heart. They were all together. was a normal way of living for them. And so there's some things I want to highlight today. And the first is the, the practice of generosity, just the way they lived their lives. What did it look like? How did they practice generosity? Look at verse 33 in chapter 4. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 32 in chapter 4. That The first thing that's true is that they were focused on community. So it says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that they belonged to him were his own, and that they had everything in common. Wow. Does that look anything close to the way we live our lives today? No. No, because what is mine is mine. It belongs to me. But they had this idea that everything was collective. Nothing was personal. It all belonged to everybody else. There wasn't this self-centeredness of this is mine. And because and when, when generosity, or at least we think generosity, starts with me, it never becomes truly generous because we always try to hang on to what we have. But just think about the way that we, we make decisions. In fact, this isn't just about our resources, but on a daily basis, think about the way that you and I go about making even the simplest decisions to the largest life decisions. We have a grid, we have a lens that we use, and, and it's, it's driven by something that we, we've heard the term, but we don't realize how much it shapes our lives. It's called consumerism. And consumerism is this mentality that says, whether you, you state it or not, it's what we believe, everything is about me. Everything's about what I get, everything's about how it benefits me. Even, even in our generosity, a lot of times, that's what we'll do. 
But there's this grid that we look through, and so that means that everything has to set itself up. There has to be an angle that somehow I'm going to make this decision, I'm going to give this money, or I'm going to participate in this activity because I know it presents some kind of benefit to me. If there is no benefit to me, then I don't think I want to engage in that. Now, you and I don't go through that long process in our brains, but probably within two seconds, you and I process through that kind of information and decisions every single day. And this is something that they were able to combat. They were able to get beyond. And they didn't ask the question, what's in it for me? They always asked the question, what do I have to offer? What do I have to offer other people around me? And that's why Paul actually, in, in Acts chapter 20, he quotes from Jesus when he says, it's more blessed to give than receive. Anybody heard that before? Yes. And we quote it all the time. But what does that really mean? If it's a better reality for me to give than it is for me to receive, then why is it that I receive more than I give in my life? And I'm not just talking about money, but we're always on the take. It's always what's beneficial for me. But if Jesus himself, and Paul quotes that, says that it's actually better for me to give than it is for me to receive, then why, do we, why don't we give more than we receive? Why? Because we look at life through a lens of consumerism. We look at something that, that if it doesn't benefit me. Now, what if we were able to through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is just as much a miracle as a man who can't walk being able to walk and someone who's blind being able to see, is that what if we were able to flip that and actually live a life that was based on what was best for everybody else around me? What if we were actually able to live that way? That kind of generosity, that way of giving ourselves away, that's what they were experiencing in this passage. What would that look like if we defaulted to this thing called community first instead of isolating ourselves. See, this is something that I think we miss out on the blessing of giving, not just our money, but giving ourselves. Because what is the best definition of generosity? is isn't about money. It's about living life open-handed. That's what generosity is. See, what we do is we live like this. And every once in a while, there's a little flicker of an opening of a hand. Something escapes, and then we close it right back up. But what if we lift, lived open-handed with our time, with our resources, with our inconveniences? Everything are just out there. Why? Because I'm not trying to hold anything back. I just live with an open hand. But we live with a closed fist. Because we're convinced we have to take care of ourselves. We have to hang on to everything. But what if, especially when it came to community, because by the way, here's the secret. If you want to know anything, and you can probably not have to listen to the rest of what I'm going to say, but here it is. What is the secret to generosity? It's the value of community. They valued community. They valued being together above anything else. And you, if you've been a part of Antioch for a amount of time, you've, this is one of our, not just mine, this is one of our soapboxes, is community is how the church lives and yet we check in and out of community because we check into community when we're we need something and if it doesn't really work for us we pull out or when we're at our greatest moment of need we don't want anybody to know we have needs so what do we do we check out of community isn't it interesting that we do the opposite this was a group of people who were persecuted for their faith. Their life was on the line. They were marginalized by the government and by their own people, the Jews, and they only had each other. So they were left with, if I'm going to have my needs met and I'm going to meet the needs of the people, I have to be in relationship with people, not just when it's convenient for me, but all of the time, living in community. Wow, you guys are looking pretty serious this morning when I'm talking about this. But just think about this. What are you, what, what are you missing out on? In community, and let me ask you probably a more important question. What are the people that you're not in community with right now missing out because you're not there? 
And I'm not just talking about community groups. Community groups is the, to the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I know I can speak for our community group. The beautiful things that what happens in our community group don't happen if you just show up to church on Sunday. Because being in community means you're in each other's lives. You're in the mess of what goes on. And when, the, when, when it really, pardon the expression, when it really hits the fan in your life, and nobody knows because you refuse to engage in relationship, now where are you? You're stuck in isolation. And you can't give and receive the generosity of community. Why? Because you've isolated yourself. I've loved how our community group, people will share the most profound and most transparent things of their brokenness. And never, ever in our community group, we've been going, uh, the Nagatska's leader group for about a year and a half, almost two years now, it's two years. I have not seen one time somebody share their deepest, darkest secrets and people wince or people turn away or people isolate or people reject. The opposite is true. When somebody goes through need in our group, the group jumps in with both feet to help them. That's community. That's what we're supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to look like. Stepping down off my soapbox, but not really, because the whole stage is a soapbox today. Look at verse 33. The practice of generosity also is saturated by grace. I love this. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What is grace? The simplest definition is God's unmerited favor. It means God does stuff for us and gives stuff to us, not because we've earned it, but because he loves us and he chooses to. So this great unmerited favor is given to the church who lives in community. That is powerful. We live in a relationship with the God of the universe that is not based on if whether or not we deserve his love, his grace, and his mercy, but by his choice. Why does God do that? I'll tell you, one of the reasons God works in grace is because one of the biggest issues of humanity is a thing called entitlement. And entitlement says this, I deserve, and you fill in the blank. And we think about that. That's that selfish kind of like, okay, but what does that mean? That means that every single day of my life, I'm thinking of the things that I deserve because I did something to earn it. I deserve because I live in a certain country. I deserve because I worked hard at work. Whatever it is, we live in this kind of reality of entitlement. And then when we don't get what we want, we get upset. Why? Because we believe that we deserve it. Here's the reality of why God works in grace. You can never say, I deserve it to God. You can't. And the only cure for entitlement is grace. Because grace basically knocks entitlement off balance because you can't say, well, I, I have to have this. Why? Because I earned this. You can't say that with God. And to, to live in a saturated by grace community means that as we live collectively together, we live in a grace context, which means that you and I don't get to come to this table and say to anybody, I deserve this. But we look at the needs of other people and say, what do they need and what can I offer in my time and my resources? I want you just to think about that. What does generosity really look like? When somebody experiences this saturation of grace, it changes the way they see themselves. I want you to capture, and you, most of you are probably familiar with this, but there's a passage, you don't have to turn there in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is invited over to a religious leader's house, and, and when he sits down for dinner, this is kind of the historical context in Luke 7, is that typically when wealthy people would have a, a dinner party, that uh, as a point of charity, they would invite some of the lower income, people in poverty, kind of undesirables, and, and they could come, 
and they could line the walls, and they would have this big courtyard a lot of times in the homes, and they would have this dinner for all the, the invited guests, but then all kind of the, the marginalized would line the walls around the perimeter of the courtyard. And after the meal was over, whatever was leftovers, then those people could come out of the shadows and they could have kind of the leftovers. And if you know this story, there are people literally lining the walls and there's a woman who actually approaches the table and she anoints Jesus' feet with an alabaster jar of, of perfume. And then with her tears, she wipes his feet with her hair. And this encounter is completely offensive to the religious leader who's invited Jesus over for dinner. Because in his mind, he says this. He says, doesn't this man know the woman who's touching him? Because she was a woman who had a terrible reputation in the community. And what he's saying is that in his mind, she deserves to show up and hang out at the wall for leftovers, but she does not deserve to come and touch one of my guests. I love the, the way Jesus encounters because he rebukes the religious leader. and He tells a story and says, hey, there was people who owed a debt and one owed this much, which was a lot, and one owed a little, and they both debts were forgiven. Who do you think was more grateful? And of course, the religious leader says, the person who had more debt. And Jesus said, you're right. Which is what? Grace and mercy that God extends to us. This woman did not deserve what Jesus did for her. You and I don't deserve what Jesus has done for us. That's why you and I don't get to stand up before God and in a community called the church and say, I deserve, because I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve anything. That means that I have to be willing to say, I don't deserve the rights to say no to my friend who's in need. Because collectively, my possessions don't belong to me. They belong to the Lord. They belong to us. So what does that look like in our lives? Then there's a, a third point of what the practice of generosity is, and that is it's driven by equality. It says in verse 34 to 35, it says, For as many who were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Just, just let that settle in. Is that just a little insane? You can answer yes, it is. I mean, think about this. If, if you had a piece of land or you had a house, especially if you had a house in Simi Valley, and you realized somebody had a huge debt they couldn't pay and they were going to be crushed by it, would you think, yeah, I think I'm going to go sell my $500,000 house? I don't think that ever passed through our brain, does it? No, it doesn't. It's insanity. What is that? That's the spirit of generosity that's committed to community, which means if I have a resource that can help somebody else, then I'm willing to lay that resource out. Now, I'm not saying that God's going to go tell you to sell your house. If he does, you better go sell your house. But what it is, that's, this, that's the demonstration of living open-handed. Even the very house that I own or the piece of land that I have is not mine. It's collectively present for what God wants to do through generosity towards other people so that there is this reality where people don't have needs anymore. Why? Because we collectively take care of each other. What if we were to look at other people not as just a little bit lower than us, but equal to us. Now, most of us say, well, I don't look down on people. Yeah, actually, they were looking eye to eye. How do we know we look down on people? Because it's always what? Me first, and then whatever's left over, I'll give to other people. That's how we do it. We don't look with equality. We 
I know of a pastor uh, who's in Cincinnati. His name is Michael Slaughter. I mean, this guy is incredible. He, he'll talk about generosity. Uh, I don't know if he still does it, but a number, a number of years ago, he, he and his family, they would always adopt a family in their church. And he told the story years ago, and I think they adopted him for probably like 10 years of their life. But there's a single mom with three kids who had no money. And so their family adopted the family. And so every single year, everything that his kids got, her kids got. New school clothes, it wasn't just his three kids going shopping, it was all six kids going. When his kids needed braces, they got braces, but when her kids needed braces, they got braces all on their dime. Because he looked at his kids and he says, we look at her kids and our kids equally. So if you were here last week, we, we talked about the reality of foster care and what that looks like, and I know a number of you were interested in what that looks like. But that's one of the things that, that I know when we, we first started fostering is that there is a tendency you can look at pity at chi- a child that comes into your house because you know they're coming from a difficult situation. And there can be this sense that you're looking down. But I remember early on that as we received babies into our house, we made a commitment. Our children in our house will be treated equally to the way that Courtney and Jordan were treated when they were growing up. They're not second-class citizens. They don't wear the clothes that are a little bit out of date and got holes in them. They get the best in fact, Kim took our new baby to the doctor this week, and we have a great relationship with the doctor who's seen all of our fosters over the last four and a half years. And she was in there with the biological family, with the parents, and they were at the checkup, and the doctor looked straight, and this is more credit to Kim than me, right at the bio parents and said, listen, you got the best with Kim. She's going to take care of your son just like he's your own. And, and, and we've done that. It's like one of the, the coolest things that I've watched Kim do is that she did this since the kids were growing up. She, she takes way more pictures than I take. She, like, records everything. You know, sometimes it's like, Mom, do you really need to take a picture? Right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? But then when you look at the picture, you're like, Mom, thanks for taking the picture, right? Capturing the moment. Every year she puts together a book through Shutterfly for our kids. So Courtney and Jordan have a book every year of their life. Everything captured. Every child that comes into our house, as long as we have them for a month or we have them for 13 months, which is the last one we had, when we either give them to an adoptive family or we send them back to their parents, that goes with a book. And I'll tell you, we've watched bio families just sob because they've missed eight months of their child's life because they were addicted to a substance and now they're free and they get their child and they capture those eight months, at least in pictures. Kim taking pictures of every stage of their life. Because if we did it for Courtney and Jordan, we want to do it for every child that comes into our house. What if we looked at that through across the board in our life? Everything that I have is not just for me, but it's for other people. I treat other people with equality. Now, two things. Look at verse 37, 38, or excuse me, 36, 37. What is the motivation behind generosity? What motivates us and what should be the motivation is this. It's always about the encouragement of others. So it says, but, uh, it says thus Joseph, who was also called by the name, uh, the apostles called him Barnabas. We've, most of us have heard of Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and bought, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So Barnabas' name comes to him, at least to what the apostles call him. Why? Because of what he did. Wouldn't it be great if you were that generous that you walked in and like, hey, generous is here encouragement is here. And you walk into the room and people are happy. Why? Because they know the kind of person you are because you always bring encouragement to everybody around you. That's the kind of person that Barnabas was. And here's, here's what generosity does. Here's what it does when it happens. It brings the encouragement to people in the most difficult moment of their life and screams this statement, you are not alone. 
I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people and either in reality or through assumption, that is our greatest fear. I'm alone. I'm stuck. I have no help. I have nowhere to turn. I'm in over my head. I can't get free from this. And suddenly a community of people surrounds that person and says to them, no, you're not alone. We're right here with you. See, that's what encouragement does. It gives you, in the darkest moment of your life, the ability to see there is hope for another day, that tomorrow can be different than today. That comes through a community of people. It doesn't come in isolation from people. We just can't go off and say, okay, Jesus, give me hope by myself because he will draw us into community and he'll say, your hope comes in me through your salvation, but your hope in this world comes through a community of people called the church. Because the enemy works in isolation. When we get stuck out on doing our own thing, we, we will never be able to really fully be who God wants us to be. I grew up in a church who was committed to living in community. We were, had a small group that, that we were a part of for years, one of the church I was growing up in. I remember lean seasons in our life where they would show up at our door and they would literally, they would stock our, our shelves with food and they would put money into my parents' pockets and they would take care of our family at those moments when we needed it. And, and I don't know how much money they gave, and I don't know what, what it was behind it, but I know one thing for sure. Every time they showed up in a moment of need, I was reminded we're not alone. There are people who love us and are committed to us. And as I've said before, I have watched our community group do this time and time again. Somebody loses a loved one. Somebody goes through crisis. I'll tell you, the church is not this building and the staff. The church is us. People will come to, to the church for needs, and we have benevolence that we give, and we care for people. But I'm telling you, the first line of generosity is your community group. And I keep having this conversation with people over and over again who come to me broken and isolated and struggling. And the first question I ask is, are you in a community group? Oh, no, I don't have time for that. But you're broken. And there's an answer in community. There's a group of people I could point to a number on church. They would love for you to walk into their door with brokenness because they will love you in the midst of your brokenness. They will remind you that you're not alone. And we need that kind of thing in our lives constantly. Find a way to be in community. I don't know what they did. I know one thing is when your life's on the line, you say yes to things that you would normally say no to. Their life was on the line, so they couldn't opt out of community. Ah, I don't feel like hanging out today. I don't feel like engaging in a relationship. They had nothing else because the majority of them had to leave family. They had to walk away from the Jewish faith. They were persecuted and so they had nothing else so they turned to each other in community. And then there's a second, second motivation to generosity and that is that it was never about promotion of self. So this is why the, the last two verses are included really more in a chapter four, verses one and two, because what, what I think what Luke was doing when he's writing, he's saying, here's Barnabas, who did it one way, and here's Ananias and Sapphira, who did it the wrong way. So look what it says in verses one and two of chapter five. It says, but a man, na man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, we're going to talk more. By the way, this is one of those scary moments in the church. We'll get to it next week in chapter 5. Because what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, we don't have a category for. And if you don't want to happen to what happens, you can cheat and read ahead. Or you can come next week as well. But what, what is Paul or Luke's doing? He's comparing. He's saying, listen, generosity isn't the appearance. Generosity is the genuine thing. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to appear to be generous, which means there was no requirement by the apostles that you had to sell your property and present all of the money to them. That was not what they were doing. 
didn't matter. You just had to bring money. But if you gave the appearance that, hey, I'm just like Barnabas. I had a piece of land that I sold, and now I'm bringing all of the money. Why? Because it makes me look good. See, so many times our generosity is based on positioning ourselves to look like we're generous. But if you're trying to look like you're generous, you're not generous. Because generosity is usually done in secret. It's when nobody knows except the person who's the recipient of your generosity and your grace that knows. That's why Jesus says this. Listen, this is Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. This is actually in the paraphrase called the message. Listen to what it says, this kind of mentality. It says, when you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure. Play actors, that's the word we use, hypocrites. I call them treating prayer meeting and street corners like a stage alike, acting compassionate as long as somebody's watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, but uh, true, but that, that's all they get. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That is the, that is the way your God who conceived you in love working behind the scenes helps you out. Now let's just let's just be really honest right now, because I'm going to be really transparent about my my own flaws. Have you ever in your life done something generously and you wanted people to see it? Raise your hand. I think we're all guilty of this. We want the pat on the back. We want the acknowledgement. We want people to think we're great. But what Jesus is warning, and he says, listen, if we do that, then the pat on the back and the momentary, yay, you did a good job, that's all you get. That's it. As opposed to the internal reward, which is far more important. It was about a year and a half ago. Um, we were, Kim and I were at a conference, and, and uh, we were presented with an opportunity in our area to give, to help. Um, really, a, it's an amazing thing going on in Foursquare right now in Belize. Uh, Belize is a growing work in Foursquare, and, and people are coming to Jesus, and the church is growing there. And so we were at a conference where we, were, we had an opportunity to make an investment to help them kind of finish a, a building they were working on because the church needed a building to meet in. And, and so uh, they put it out to this conference. And so Kim and I have this rule that we independently kind of listen, okay, Lord, what are you saying? And then we kind of bounce it off the other person to kind of see, okay, is this the Lord or is this, or am I missing it? And so I'm sitting, I wasn't even sitting next to Kim. She was across the room. I don't know why we weren't even sitting. I think she had, our baby was crying or whatever. And so she's on the other side of the room and I'm sitting there. And the Lord puts an amount in my, my mind, and I'm like, that cannot be God. Because I know we don't have that much money. And so I thought, here's my safety valve. I'm going to ask Kim, and, and she's going to come up with a totally different number. I'm going to go, whoo. So I start texting her. I said, this is the number I got, but I just, I know it's probably way. She texts back. She goes, no way. She goes, that's the exact number that I got. And I'll just, I'm not going to tell you the amount, but it was probably, it's the most money I've ever given in a one-time gift to any one thing other than a normal tithe. And so I was hoping she was going to save the day and say, oh, no, far less than that. And she goes, that's exactly. So we wrote a check. And so when we wrote a check, and it, it went, the, the people running the conference, I know, and I know where the money was going to go. And so just inside me, I thought, someone's going to be impressed with me. I'm just being honest, because that is a stinking ton of money to give away they're probably thinking where did he come up with that kind of money right anybody ever thought that come on be honest so I'm waiting for like someone during the conference after they count the offering like wow or later on when they're processing the giving and sending you know your tax deductible receipt like someone's going to say something because they all know who I am and I'm giving this money somebody's going to say something a year and a half has gone by and not one person 
has said, wow, you're really generous. And I'm so glad they haven't. Because whatever reward I, I'm going to get, someday it's going to come in heaven. It's not going to come in this world. But what would, what would that be like if we were able to get beyond that? To say, you know, I'm going to give this genuinely, and the only person who knows I'm going to give this is God. And that's good enough for me. That's, that's what this comparison is that Luke's creating here, is that there's this idea that it doesn't really matter what other people think. Because, again, generosity is not a human endeavor. It's divinely inspired. It's something that comes from God. Then there's a, the, the final point that I want to lean into. That is, what is the power in generosity? Here's, here's what you've got to capture. Look at verse 34. This is, this is crazy. Verse 34 in chapter 4 says this. There was not a needy person among them. Just think about that. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus said, the poor will be with you always, right? Not in this situation. In fact, this is what, what's so powerful is that you and I have to pick up this very, the words that the Holy Spirit inspired that Luke recorded are the very fulfillment of a promise that God gave in the Old Testament to his people. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. He says, this is as, as God's people are coming into the land that God's giving them. He says, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for it as an inheritance to, to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all, the, all this commanded that I command you today. Do you, do you see the connection? There will be no poor among you. This is, this is crazy. You mean the church has the capacity to be a place in a community of people where poverty no longer exists? That's what the Bible's saying. Do you capture that? And here's, here's the reality. The reason that's po possible is not because of money. Poverty is not a resource issue. Poverty is a relational issue. It is. The reason people find themselves in poverty is because they find themselves isolated. If you've ever sat down and talked to a person living on the street, I will guarantee you nine times out of ten, you will find a broken relationship in their past that triggered something. If it's not mental illness, it's a broken relationship. Why? Because, yeah, I was married and then I got divorced or my family disowned me or whatever, and then you found out and I had nobody where to go and I ended up on the street. That's not, a, that's not a money issue. It's a relational one. And that's why being in community alleviates poverty. Why? Because you're never alone. Even in your lowest moments, there are, there's a collective group of people around you who's committed to you and loves you. That's why there's power in generosity because there's power in community. In fact, this is, this is the beauty of even extends outside the local church, but it's the church collectively. This is the DNA of who we are as a church. This is one of the reasons why we're called Antioch Church. We're not trying to be Antioch of Acts chapter 11, but we're trying to live out an authentic expression of what it looked like to have the same DNA as that church 2,000 years ago. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. It says, now in these days, this is talking of, this is our namesake church. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples decided or determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They did so, sending it by the elders, or to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. 
What's going on there? They heard there was going to be a famine through something God inspired to tell them. And their first response was, there's going to be brothers and sisters in need. So what do we do? We've got to give. We've got to give. Now, that doesn't mean that we extend generosity to the world, but generosity is something that's supposed to be collectively in community. And that's why all over the long haul, handouts don't work. They never have because they're not relationally based. They're just resource based. But I want you to capture what, what's really going on in this passage and what I really want us to see this morning is that we're, we're actually now in, in, a, in, a, in a place where the power of what the church represents to the world is something that we have yet to really experience. Obviously, the Lord of the church is Jesus and his salvation through his death and resurrection is what we offer the world. But this thing called community is something that we've missed. It's something distinctly unique about the church that's different than any other place. Here's why. Every, most every other social club or connection point or what we call community is never based on our brokenness that gets redeemed. But the church is based on what? A group of people that comes together because they need Jesus. And when they find Jesus, they realize that Jesus doesn't just work independently on his own. He works collectively through this thing called the church, his bride. Nothing else in the world looks like that. Because everything else that's defined by brokenness stays in its brokenness. It is continually, continually and perpetually defined by brokenness. That's nothing, nothing against 12-step uh, programs and AA and NA. Those are great things. But if, if someone is stuck in that cycle for the rest of their life and all they ever are is a recovering addict and never fully recovered, then their identity is stuck in their brokenness. Our identity is not stuck in our brokenness. It is stuck in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And he doesn't call us sinner. He calls us saint. He doesn't see our sin. He gives us what? Righteousness. But here's why this is so powerful today. So powerful. And this is why this is not about uh, uh, trying to raise the percentage of people in community groups in our church because ultimately you being in a community group is not about a pat on my back or John Looney's back or anything, but it's about the benefit you bring to that group and the benefit you'll receive from that group. But you have to start with the benefit that you will bring to the group. I want you to capture why community is so important and why the outflow of community is generosity. And this is what the world is hungering for right now. Anybody watch the news this week? Our country is seriously broken. Pipe bombs sent to different, regardless of your political affiliation, sent to people who were perceived as the enemy. Somebody killing two people in a, in a grocery store in Kentucky and then trying to push for an assault on an African-American church. And then yesterday, a man goes into a synagogue and kills 11 people because he thinks they're the invaders. We're broken. Why? What do we have to offer? The one thing that our country doesn't have. We cannot get along. We can't live in community. It doesn't matter who's in the White House or who wins the election. It doesn't matter. They can't bring our people together. We just get further and further and further apart. But what does the church offer? The church is the one place in the world where someone can come in who has a different background, has a, a different ethnicity, has different points of brokenness, has a different background, and can find a beautiful thing called unity in community because we all focus on Jesus. Nothing in the world offers that. 
because it's all based on ideology and differences. But we come together and difference, the diversity of differences is the beauty of the church. That we find our unity in Jesus. Why is that so important? Because the world is dying for a community that's authentic and genuine and accepting and loving. And they're not finding it. So we get deeper and deeper in our ideology and we get further and further apart and these things start popping up, which by the way, I, I was having a conversation with someone before church today. So what we are seeing in our country isn't like, oh, it's just because it's the current political climate. No, you know what it is? This kind of evil has been in us for years, but now because civility has been peeled away, it's just come to the surface. We've been broken for a long time. But what's the answer to that? The answer is community. I want to share this one last thing, and then, then we'll close. So this last Wednesday night, we had probably the most profound worship night that we've ever experienced since I've been at the church. Not only did we experience the presence of God, but, but there was a, a sense that God was speaking to us, and there was freedom happening in the room. And I'm telling you, I have never seen people like the experience the kind of freedom that happened this last Wednesday night. But I wanna, I'm going to read for a moment one of, the, one of the things that was shared. In fact, that the person who shared it with me, they, they wrote me an email to say, hey, this is kind of the full picture of what God was giving me because I feel like it's so important for us collectively to hear what, what God is saying to all of us and how God is wanting to bring about unity in community in our church for the sake of the world. And that means there, ha- there may have to be some, some relational repair that some of us are gonna need to do to truly come in unity and commit to community together. So this is... This person was given an an image that the Lord was uh, showing her, and and she kind of unpacked a little more. So let me just read through this, and then um, we'll give some some, uh, emphasis to it, and then we'll we'll conclude. But just listen to what was going on Wednesday night. She said, during worship, the Lord brought brought a memory, an image I had from years ago when I was in India, riding in a boat and going through channel locks. At the time, I, I did not know what they were. They were just going, uh, going past one massive metal opening, and then it, cl- it, began, uh, it being closed, and then the next one in front of us opening to go through, and so on and so on. I asked what, what we were, uh, where we were and what we were doing, and I was given the explanation of the channel locks and that the goal was to keep the fresh water and the sea water separated. I saw the same area of water, but locks were completely gone. This is the image she was seeing. The fresh water was flowing freely to the open sea. The interpretation I believe the Holy Spirit was saying to me was that he, was, he is sending us, his church, to the sea of people that do not know or understand him and that we are to be fresh water to satisfy their thirst. We are his culture transformers with answers uh, to the answers, uh, answers to what really matters and that he is wanting to remove all locks and all barriers. After further understanding came, I, I gained understanding that this meant that we are the body of Christ and we are needed to be molded and to become true representation of him and to allow him to revamp our thinking and understanding of how to be the answer to what the world is truly asking that would take more than one generation to do it. I understood that there may be a revolution of the younger generation with the older generation leading and supporting But the Lord made it clear his heart is that young and old come together. The mothers and fathers need to encourage, raise up, build up, and hear the heart of the younger generation as they uh, are the eyes of the culture today. The sons and daughters need to find those older ones whom they can trust and share with and be loving mentors or mentor them to become strong and grounded in their walk, to be supported, loved, and understood 
fertilized and watered, becoming a strong and tall tree. We mentor each other in different ways. It came as a revelation, not as a rebuke. It was like a missing puzzle piece, a given secret from his treasures. That's for our church. That God is calling us to live in community because it's what the world needs. So hear me on this. I, I really felt it Wednesday night. Since I've been in our, our church, one of the things I've noticed is that we, in some regards, generationally, tolerate each other. What I mean by that is it, it's not that we're at war with each other, we're arguing with each other. I just noticed in our church that the older generation tends to tolerate the younger generation. Not like love and accept and celebrate, but tolerate. And then the younger generation has a tendency to despise the older generation. And we're both equally wrong. And because of that, God is saying, and I think I'm convinced through this, because remember Acts chapter 2? Old, young, sons, daughters. The prophecy that Joel gave was for all generations to come together. And I believe that God's calling us as a church to live in community. Ah, Pastor John, let's go back to miracles. Let's talk about the blind heal, being healed and the, you know, the deaf hearing. And let's talk about, no, no, let's talk about the power of generosity that lives out in community. Community is costly. But community changes things. We need to live in community. So and when I close with this, I'm going to pray. I don't know what that means for you, but if, if you're from one of those generations and you know, yeah, as a young, young person, I've despised the old, maybe there's somebody that you have despised and you need to know, go and make a relationship, right? Older generation, yeah, you have tolerated and you've put up with the younger generation. Maybe there's somebody you need to go with, go to. Because the beauty of the church is in diversity. One more side note, and this is, let me just, this is my heart. I want you to hear me. It's one of the reasons that we really believe in community groups. Community groups are multi-generational, multi-gender groups for a reason. The early church did not separate generations and genders. Not to say that that's wrong, but they didn't do it. Because there's a dynamic that happens in a place when you are faced with someone of a different gender, someone of a different generation, and someone of a different ethnicity that helps you to grow more than if you were in just one kind of vanilla group. No offense. There are times for guys to be with guys and gals to be with gals, but community groups is the beautiful mix of all of those together. I'll, I love hanging out with guys, but I get tired of hearing from guys. I want to hear from women. I do. By the way, all except for one of the words that came on Wednesday night came from women. If we're shutting it down and saying, guys here and women here, guys over here, we're not getting any prophecies from God, but the women over here, they're getting all kind of stuff, right? That's why we have to be mixed together. That's why we talk about community groups. That's why it's so important for us. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to pray, but hear me. Don't walk away just say, ah, let me write this one off. This is as powerful as any other, any other thing we've looked at from the book of Acts. This is what the world is needing. This is what the church is needing. This is what God has called us to. Let's pray together. In fact, just stand with me where you're at right now. Jesus, we, we look at the passage that you've given to us from Acts. We thank you that you inspired Luke to record the way the church was living. And Lord, it's not easy to live in community. It's not easy, easy to value and practice generosity. But Lord, we know that just as your power on, on Peter and John to heal the lame man, to speak the truth and boldness, which we talked about last week, 
we know that that came through the filling of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I know that generosity and community is just as much of a powerful reality. We need to be filled by your Spirit so that we might value, Lord, the things that you value, love the things that you love, and then, Lord, be the kind of people that show up because we know there are others who may be able to benefit by our presence in community. So, Lord Jesus, would you give us the deep conviction of your Holy Spirit to live these things out in Jesus' name.